T watches a scary movie. My name is T, and of course, we're talking scary movies. I appreciate y'all tuning in for another brand new episode. Remember, new episodes go up every single Wednesday night. Video version at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on the YouTube page. So if you're watching this, that means you went to youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. Again, that's youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie to see the video version of the show. And our audio version is available on all your favorite podcasting platforms that are out there. That goes up at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, just a little bit early from the video version. I appreciate you tuning in for your first time. Don't forget to find me on your other channels as well, too. You can find me on Twitter at Axdew, that's A-X-D-E-W, and on Instagram at Theron, that's T-H-E-R-O-N underscore Reynolds, R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S. And of course, you got to get to the Facebook group. If you go to the Facebook group, that's where you can find out the info on our watch parties. We always do at least one watch party a week, every Wednesday night before and after the new show comes on. We watch at least one of the movies that I'm reviewing on the show. Uh, tonight, for example, we are going to be watching both Studio 666 and D. Snyder's Strangeland as well. So if you want to see those, come on over to the Facebook page. That's Facebook.com slash group slash T scary movie again facebook.com slash group slash T scary movie if you go there you can find some written reviews some written pieces that I've done you can also engage some fun conversation with myself and my viewers and listeners as well too uh, and then you can also get the link to get to the watch party that we definitely want you to come and hang out and have fun in so it has been a week folks uh, since the last episode it's seeming like a lot of uh, high-profile shit has gone down in the crazy world of uh, Hollywood and horror as well. And uh, we're not going to talk about a lot of that stuff. Um, you know what I'm referring to, what happened Sunday night. Of course, that uh, uh, Coda. Coda won Best Picture at the Oscars. And Zack Snyder's Justice League took home fan favorite moment. And uh, look, y'all, I love Zack Snyder's Justice League. I thought that was great. It was uh, good at the start of 2021 when we were looking for shit just to watch. And uh, that was a really, really enjoyable watch. I'm going to miss the Snyderverse for sure. But you got to be out your fucking mind if you're going to try to sit there and act like the, the Justice League. It wasn't even Justice League. No, I'm sorry. It was the Speed Force. It was the Flash entering the Speed Force in Zack Snyder's Justice League. You got to be out your fucking mind if you're trying to convince me that was the fan favorite moment over anything Marvel has done, including Avengers Endgame, when you finally have everybody together ready to fight Thanos and uh, and and his team. Or uh, even Spider-Man No Way Home with our three Spider-Mans. Like, come the fuck on, really? The Flash entering the Speed Force? Get the fuck out of here, man. There is no, not a chance. Not a chance in hell. Uh, yeah, craziness. Craziness at the Oscars. And folks are getting feisty because Malignant didn't win uh, best, uh, be best Film. Best Film? Uh, what was up for? Fan Favorite Film? Whatever the hell it was. Uh, is it Injustice that it didn't win? Gabriel will be back throwing chairs at anybody who doesn't believe that he's the fan favorite, of course. Uh, no, um... Rather timely, rather, rather timely here that, uh, you know, this this was not pre-planned by any any means now. Um, and obviously, I'm trying to be sensitive, everything going on. But with us talking Studio 666 tonight, uh, this past weekend, drummer Taylor Hawkins of the Foo Fighters tragically passed away. 
Um, you know, we're not going to go into details surrounding that or anything, but um, they're, they're very, uh, very eerily timely to think that I was excited to watch this movie, excited to talk to y'all about it and discuss a lot of it. And we still are going to do that, but it's just kind of crazy to think that on a show where we're talking horror, we're reviewing horror, we're talking, we're, we're doing everything that's horror related, doing a lot of death. And, um, you know, we have the depth of somebody in a film that we're talking about that we're watching right now. And not only that, but somebody from the Foo Fighters, which is a band that I know a lot of you like me, uh, grew up on, you know, that, that is a band that played the soundtrack of your life. And I didn't have the privilege of getting into the Foo Fighters until, you know, 99, 2000, uh, 2000 or so, uh, you know, around the time that learned to fly and everything, was coming out and then i went back and got into older stuff which helped also expand my love for nirvana as well too and so i really do feel that since the late 90s up until now that i really got to spend my life hearing like generational foo fighter songs as i got older and each is over a different period of my life you know things like everlong and my hero like i wasn't into the foo fighters back then but i knew those songs at least and growing, growing up with those, moving on to things like um, Learn to Fly and The Pretender and uh, Best of You, um, uh, times like these, like there, there's so many, so many fantastic songs out there. And Taylor was there for, for the majority of that. You know, he's an amazing drummer that everybody in the music scene has such great respect for, you know, when he passed, all these things were going up on social media from all these other bands and artists that I know. And it's like, it's clear the impact that the Foo Fighters, but Taylor himself have done on the music scene. This is a very well-known and very well-regarded and very well-liked band that everybody, everybody just enjoys everything about the Foo Fighters. So um, it, it was nice to see the outpouring of love for Taylor coming out this week. And, and I, you know, folks, there are much better, bigger fear, uh, Foo, Foo Fighter fans than I am. My boy, Chris Palmer, uh, who designed uh, this wonderful backdrop that I'm using now here for the show uh, is a huge, huge, huge Foo Fighters fan. And so um, uh, I know that hit him, uh, hit him pretty hard. My, my good boy, Travis, uh, who's, uh, you know, out of Washington as well. Big, big Foo Fighters fan. And it makes sense because, you know, that's where a lot of their sounds came from. Um, but yeah, it, it was interesting. Even my nephew reached out to me and uh you know asked me if i had heard about taylor passing away and it's like damn man like it, it, it's really crazy it, it's really really crazy for us to start getting to that age to where we realize that time is actually a thing and getting old is really actually a, a legitimate thing that's out there and we're all gonna get old at a point and we're all gonna start dealing with more and more issues and everything and it, it's weird to like to start seeing more and more of the people that you and I grew up on, you know, if you're in my age group, I'm 34 myself, but that I grew up on, uh, still get close to their mortality. That shit is crazy, man. So, uh, I leave that to say that Taylor, I am excited to discuss studio 666 tonight. I had a really, really good time with it. And the music that you and the Foo Fighters have made over the past, um, the last 23 years that I've been into you, you guys, and into the band, uh, into that sound, um, you've you've helped 
helped me mature and helped me become the person I am today because music, as much as movies and TV play such a big role in my life and everything that's made me, music has played a big role in that life as well too. Um, I get nostalgic all the time and can think back to moments in my life and hear songs and set scenes in my mind. There's certain songs and Foo Fighters are there for a lot of that. So Taylor, thank you so much for playing such a big role in my life and uh, let's let let's have a great review tonight. I hope you enjoy the words I have to say about Studio Six Six Six. So to change gears, uh, because I do want to kind of put some more focus on the social media stuff out there, because I'm having so much fun. Uh, just joined a horror community on Twitter, ran by Jed Shepard, uh, one of the co-writers of the fantastic Shutter uh, Zoom horror film host. Uh, put together a great little horror community that is like thriving like crazy in just a few days on Twitter. And we've had a lot of really good conversations on that. Um, so that's definitely one you got to keep an eye out for if you're looking to have great fun horror conversations. A lot of cool ass people in there as well, too. Um, but a fun conversation that actually came up a week or two ago by uh, Tommy Doyle on Twitter. Uh, that's at Tommy Doyle 47. Great guy. Love the conversation pieces. He brings up on his Twitter. Um, but he had asked if uh, people were a fan of Predator 2. If you remember Predator 2, second film in the Predator franchise starring Danny Glover and went from the jungles of like Colombia and Brazil uh, to the uh, inner city of America, basically in, in LA, in South Central LA, and the Predator uh, involved in gang warf uh, warfare. And I absolutely love that movie. Absolutely fucking love Predator 2. I actually like it more than the first one because I think there's something, uh, maybe not relatable, but something scarier about putting this monster in an urban inner city environment and everybody just having to kind of fight their way out. Especially when you see any of the other Predator movies. Predator 2 is very, very unique with the exception of the recent The Predator. It's very, very unique in the setting of where the Predator is working at. So I love that movie. But Tommy Doyle followed that up with um, a tidbit which... I feel I had heard, I, I'm not going to stand and be like, yeah, of course I knew that, but I feel like I heard it, and it also is not too crazy to think about, brought up uh, that Steven Seagal was very, very close to being cast over Danny Glover, and what would you think about Steven Seagal starring in Predator 2? So yeah, uh, Steven Seagal was very close to starring in this film, and you know, Danny Glover ended up getting the role, and thinking about that, it doesn't actually sound too bad, because... Look, I'm not out here saying that Steven Seagal is a better actor than Danny Glover. I'm not out here saying Steven Seagal is this fantastic actor. He's not. Um, you know what you're getting when you're watching a Steven Seagal film. But that's kind of the thing is that that doesn't stop the fact that Steven Seagal has been in some badass films in our lifetime. Like, I'm a big fan of the Under Siege series. I'm, I go back and forth to one and two any given day. They're both a lot of fun. Exit Wounds with him and DMX, that's a lot of fun as well. Um... Uh, 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 what is it? Hard to kill. Hard to kill is great. Above the law. Like, there are so many good Steven Seagal films. Like, and they're not good because they're actually good. It's just this one. These were the action films of back in the day. Like when you got your parents to rent you these like big, gory and brutal and messed up action films where the, 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 the action stars like the Arnold or Sylvester or Steven Seagal or somebody like that. And they're getting uh, like getting tortured and cut up and everything. And they gotta flex those muscles and beat the shit out of all these bad guys. Absolutely love it. And let's not forget the fact that Arnold Schwarzenegger did a Predator movie off that idea alone, just being this big muscly dude fighting this alien who's gonna win. So I had to think about that. I was like, oh, it's gonna be a shit movie. And I was like, wait a minute. 
it would basically make Predator 2 all of the fucking movies that Steven Seagal was already making. Like, basically, if you saw Above the Law, that's Predator 2. Like, just without the, without the Predator in it. And I was like, damn. Damn, if you really think about that, that movie might turn out to be just as good if you really think about it now. Because... It, that that was that was Steven Seagal's movie. That really was his movie. Oh, he's playing a cop, and he's trying to figure out who's killing all his partners and stuff right now. And once he figures out who's trying to kill his partners, he's gonna go and kill that guy. And there's another agency working against the cops, so he's gotta fight them too. That's Jake Busey. It works out perfectly. Now, with the dialogue, it's not like Predator 2 is like the best in dialogue or anything. But with the dialogue be as good as it is. Probably not. Probably a little bit more one-liners in there. A little bit more macho coming out your way. Uh, and there's no doubt that Danny Glover's uh, Harrigan, as he's presented in the finished film we see, I love him. I love that character. I love Danny Glover in it. But Steven Seagal would actually work really, really well in Predator 2 to the point to where I think I'd actually enjoy that infight with the Predator more with Steven Seagal than I would with Danny Glover. I love everything with Danny Glover up into that. But then we still, like, we understand Danny Glover's got to be smarter than the Predator, and that's kind of how he wins the fight. Whereas, I think if it was Steven Seagal, Steven Seagal would have been like Arnold, and it really would have been, let's face off, man. Let's figure it out and go. I I don't know if the smart disc would have been ended up being used to kill that Predator with Steven Seagal in it. I really do think it would be a mirror, mirror image copy of what happened at the end of Predator. Maybe they get a little La Brea tar pits. Who the fuck knows? Uh, but... I actually think Predator 2 with Steven Seagal could work extremely well. What do you all think? Think back to the old Steven Seagal movies. Think back to Predator 2. Could you merge those two ideas? Could they work well? Let me know in the comments whether you think a Predator 2 uh, with Steven Seagal could really work. Uh, yeah, so great conversation there. Love to have more. We're going to try to feature more of those on the show uh, moving forward as well, too. But I want to dive into the movies that we're going to be talking tonight. So, as I mentioned, first up, we're going to be discussing Studio 666. Now, this film, uh, it's the first non-documentary film to feature the Foo Fighters. Keep in mind, they made films for, uh, the, they did movies for Sonic Highways, which is the album they put out right around the time, um, uh, right around 2014. Um, and then they also put out uh, Back and Forth back in 2010. 10, I think it was so they've done a couple of films before but this was going to be the first actual like scripted like actual fic fictional film that they were behind uh Dave Grohl wrote the story and he also co-wrote the um uh uh what's it called he co-wrote the story or he wrote the story but the screenplay was written by uh Jeff Bueller and Rebecca Hughes directed by BJ McDonald and it tells the story of the Foo Fighters trying to record their latest album but Dave is lacking in inspiration they're looking for something to get the sound that they need out there for their fans. And Dave decides that the best way to do it with a little haunting uh, is to find like an old dilapidated house like a lot of rockers have done. Get that perfect inspiration and make the perfect album. Um, and so they end up uh, finding this mansion that is absolutely perfect for it. And we find out at the beginning of the film um, that there were a, a string of murders that happened in this previous home when presumably another band was trying to record their album as well too. And then we follow the Foo Fighters of the course of trying to make this awesome rock sound uh, while trying to save their own lives as well. And that's the premise behind Studio 666. Now, 
I will say coming into this film, I absolutely expected it to be more of a uh, like kind of like a rock opera. Like if you ever saw Repo, Darren Lynn Boozman's film, a fantastic movie, by the way. Uh, but I expected it to be a lot like Repo or any other like horror musical, something along those lines where we were going to get performances and we were going to get some songs in this movie. And first thing I tell you out the gate is this is not that. And good or bad, I do think that allows you to focus more on the story that Studio 666 is trying to tell. Because it would have been real, uh, fairly easy for um, uh, for Grohl and the Foo Fighters to put in any of their back catalog of songs into this, okay? Uh, they could have easily smattered in a few of their songs throughout the film. And it really wouldn't have been weird in the least bit. Uh, but I'm actually impressed by the fact they did it. Like, this actually seemed like a movie to where... They said, we want to make an actual movie. Like, we actually enjoy horror. We enjoy that genre completely. We would love to make a movie, and we don't want it to be, like, some kind of cliche tie-in to an album or anything like that, which is funny considering that, like, considering the story of the film itself, it doesn't come off as contrived or cliche at all. It's actually a hell of a lot of fun. The Foo Fighters actually made a horror film. And the idea of this, it's kind of shining light is that they go to this mansion to focus and get this album done. And as time keeps on going by, Dave just continues to delve further and further and further into madness because he has he has to like to to embrace these dark desires and embrace all this madness that's going on in his head and in this house in order to get the album that the fans will just absolutely lose their shit over. And we we then find out that not only is Dave Grohl actually pretty fucking hilarious, which we we should long pass known by now. Like Dave Grohl is fucking fantastic. That guy is funny as shit. If you've seen any of the commercials, especially the last few years, he's been doing. He's made appearances in like on a TV and stuff like that before. The guy is actually a decent actor, and yeah, he's one of those guys where it's hard to be like, okay, that's Dave Grohl, and that can only be Dave Grohl. But if you're making a movie about the Foo Fighters. That's not a bad thing that we can only see Dave Grohl as himself. And even more so than that, the rest of the Foo Fighters, the fact that they all have these fleshed out roles in it and that they're funny as shit as well, too. You know, Taylor Hawkins is in it. Uh, Nate Mendel, Pat Schmier, Chris Shiffit, Rami Jaffe. They're all in the movie and they all get different chances to shine. And I absolutely love that that each of the different foos got a chance to have their own, like their own character in here. You know, Taylor is just being, uh, being this guy who's annoying the shit out of Dave throughout the entire story. Uh, like the entire time, he's not doing anything to help the band. And as each of them slowly get like more and more pissed at Dave, like he is the one that's just getting goofier and goofier and goofier. Uh, Chris Shippett has this role in the film to where all he's there to do is like to go against everything the band is saying and it and he does such a great job with it too uh it like every one of the foo fighters is actually funny as shit and it's hard to tell you know is this just because you have great writers who know these guys well enough know their humor and they can write to that or is it that these guys are actually a lot better at like other kind of performing that's not performing rock songs and they can actually act. And I think it's a combination of the two because all six guys, they keep up with it. And it's not like their cast doesn't have a few uh, few other people in there that we should know. 
for example, Whitney Cummings, Will Forte, uh, Jeff Garland, Leslie Grossman, uh, Jenna Ortega, uh, Jiminy Simpson, John Carpenter, even all play roles in this film. And while not like these roles aren't like the, the largest ones, I think like Whitney Cummings ends up probably having the largest featured role compared to everybody else. But even acting alongside these other other folks that have been acting for a while, the Foo Fighters keep it up. And that's good because then that allows us to properly like just, uh, what's the word, immerse ourselves in everything that's going on with all the horror around us. You know, um, it's very clear there's some inspiration. I already mentioned The Shining before, but there's definitely inspiration coming out of The Shining, uh, coming out of things like Evil Dead as well too. The Exorcist is a part of that in there as well. And... I love that because it allows us to get some varied ways of the deaths that happen in the movie. And not only that, the movie also makes it clear, as we should already know, this is not reality. So if you're wondering, all right, well, this has probably got to turn out great for everybody because it's the Foo Fighters and the Foo Fighters can't die, right? Watch the movie. Uh, I love that it seems like they committed fully to this and just wanted to make a really, really fun horror movie. And it is a lot of fun. Um, it is overly, uh, overly gory and overly bloody at certain points, but that seems actually what they were going for with this to the point to where I was getting flashbacks of um, Peter, Peter Jackson movie, uh, uh, Dead Alive, Dead Alive with the Sumerian Rat Monkey. Uh, that film is just grossly and hilariously like gory for no reason at all. And I feel that Studio 666 tried to pull that same kind of vibe at certain points in the movie. People are getting cut in half with chainsaws. People are being grilled alive. Uh, people are being ran over. They're getting spikes through their eyes. They're getting their heads smashed in with hammers. Like there is a lot of fun, inventive deaths in this movie and there's heaps of blood to go along with that as well it's really really good for a freshman effort from the Foo Fighters putting out a horror film and in terms of the monster itself again they make the smart idea to have the narrative not so much focused on what are all these monsters and demons and ghosts and things doing in this mansion as opposed to all right, well, clearly they are influencing members of the band. So what's the band doing uh, with that instead of all these monsters? And I think that's the right idea because each of these guys uh, have the ability to come off both menacing and friendly as hell, depending on the context and the light that they're being shown in throughout this film. Uh, and it's weird because we get a musical performance of uh, Dave Grohl singing a, uh, singing a cover and it contains one of the most hilarious fucking cameos I think I've ever seen. Like, it's an all-time cameo from somebody you wouldn't expect. Like, you know it after the first few seconds. Um, you don't know the cameo's coming, but after the first few seconds, it makes sense. Uh, one of the best cameos of one of the only musical performances inside Studio 666. So, so good. Um, now, when it comes to the horror itself... There were a few times where it's like, okay, I can definitely see how that could be perceived as scary. The image of the demon and like the, the ghost or the demons, the spirits that are working with this demon haunting the foos. Um, like that imagery is very, very much ghastly and very much like scary. I do think that's actually on the scary side for sure. But with that, it's definitely a play. This movie's played up more as like a black or a dark comedy uh in terms of the scares and the humor 
more than it is a straight horror film. And I don't mean that as an insult in the least bit because the movie, I think, does a great job with everything it tries to put across the screen itself. But I'd be lying if I said that I thought trying to scare us was the number one priority. Uh, besides, like, the opening scene and maybe, like, one or two other ones, I don't think that was really the goal here, and that's more than okay. This definitely made me feel that this was a band that absolutely understands making something that doesn't have to be cliche. Like, they're not trying to make a Hard Day's Night or Yellow Submarine or anything like that. They're actually just trying to make a movie that they're in. They're using their notoriety as the Foo Fighters to make a horror film because they wanted to make a horror movie. And I think they absolutely succeeded in that aspect, 100% to where I wouldn't mind seeing these guys do another film, honestly. I for some reason thought this was going to be an anthology story you know tales from the dark side tales from the crypt twilight zone anything like that for some reason i thought that's what it was going to be just because of um all the other actors who end up in the movie but i was pleasantly surprised to keep that one narrative throughout the entire film let the foo fighters and their guest cast shine let the scares and the death shine as well and they did a really amazing job with this movie y'all um definitely one you're going to want to check out it is available uh to rent right now on most of your streaming platforms and it should actually be getting getting a physical release i believe uh it's end of april early may so let's change gears now and talk about our second movie that we bundled up with studio 666 we are talking d snyder's strangeland so with Strangeland, uh, this movie I had been seeing the cover for for a while at this point. Uh, when I worked at Circuit City back in the mid-2000s, I remember seeing it on shelves all the time uh, in rental stores because I worked at a Blockbuster video for a while as well, too. Uh, I absolutely remember seeing this movie. And I didn't know what to think because the cover of the film has uh, Linda Cardinalini, uh, you might remember from uh, Scooby-Doo and uh, Avengers and all that good stuff, uh, uh, on the front, uh, shaded in blue, with her lips sewn up. And I remember I didn't see the cover of this until probably after I had seen like a couple Saw films, and so I just immediately assumed that's probably what it was. It looked like somebody was getting tortured. Who knows? Now, D. Snyder's fantastic. D. Snyder is absolutely fantastic. That is a guy for us, y'all. Um, he makes fantastic music. The Twisted Sister makes great albums. Uh, and I like a lot of his solo stuff as well, too. He's got great fucking music taste. And he is a fan of horror. He's a big, big fan of horror. And so D. Snyder actually wrote this script and, uh, you know, put the story and everything together as well, too. It was directed by John uh, Peeplow. And it's very clear what D was setting out to do here. He wanted to make a movie that could introduce some kind of new horror icon. And in D. Snyder's credit, this film very much so is a great nostalgia trip for me at least. Uh, it was produced in October of 1998 and it has very much a late 90s feel to it. Not an insult to the movie at all, but while I was watching it, I couldn't shake the fact that this is something that I would have put on at like 1 a.m. on Cinemax back in like the early 2000s, uh, which kind of gives you an idea of a bit of the feel for it. Like there isn't a lot of nudity in this movie. And that's not the purpose of it at all, but it kind of almost feels like a Skinamax movie that turned into a horror film uh, to a certain, certain extent, which again, not an insult in the least bit. And the story tell, uh, tells about, uh, again, Linda Cardinalini's character, uh, Genevieve Gage and her friend Tiana, 
are uh, into chatting with random people online. Remember, this is the tail end of the 90s. The internet is big and huge. And one big thing at the end of the 90s and early 2000s people were loving were chat rooms. Didn't matter what, you just jump into the chat room and you start talking to somebody random. But back in the 90s, I know we still have issues now, but back in the late 90s, things were not as safe as they were these days. So uh, the idea of meeting up with somebody, the idea of giving out a lot of that personal information, that's a scary thing back at the end of the 90s because you could end up being dead. You could end up being kill, kidnap, whatever. So I love the fact that D. Snyder told a timely tale of something that was new that was coming out that a lot of parents were truly worried about. And of course, what ends up happening? Genevieve and her friend Tiana end up uh, chatting with this person named Captain Howdy, which right off the jump, being a horror fan, you could tell there's something wrong with that name. Because if you recognize the name Captain Howdy, you might know that from a little film known as The Exorcist, as that was one of the names that the demon god Pazuzu used uh, in order to make himself more friendly to Reagan before ultimately possessing her and causing all that fun, fun havoc that happened in The Exorcist and The Exorcist 2 and The Exorcist 3 and then uh, Dominion, a prequel to The Exorcist and Exorcist The Beginning, happened in all those films. Um, and when they go to attend a party, being hosted by Captain Howdy, they find two of them find themselves kidnapped by local serial killer and torturer Captain Howdy. Now, Captain Howdy is played by D. Snyder, who looks amazing in uh, all of his makeup. He's got all these body modifications and piercing, these giant tattoos on his face and his chest as well, making him this very intimidating and just beastly looking figure somebody who uh compared to a lot of the other killers at the time we might have you know a freddy or a chucky uh this guy looks like he could actually stand up you know mano and mano and take you the fuck out and i think that was important because we're in the late 90s and you know at this point we're in such a meta phase to where we we do realize that certain horror films don't work because uh, this person can easily run away from this person. They can overpower this killer. They could kill this killer. And so whether intentional or not, D. Snyder playing his own lead character, his own villain in this piece works out fantastically because it becomes very, very clear that Captain Howdy is not the one to be fucked with. And one thing that's very interesting about Captain Howdy, as we find out over the course of this movie, is that He's not really killing anybody. Um, I know that's kind of the implication here is that this guy's been doing it to a lot of people and collecting victims and trophies and things like that. But the one thing we see over the course of this film is that Captain Howdy is about torture. Like he's piercing all of these different victims, um, you know, man and woman that he's kidnapping and he's putting him in all this immense pain. But not many of them actually seem to die and he didn't seem to actually be killing too many of them so it's the weirdest thing in the world absolute weirdest thing in the world that uh, uh uh that it's a horror film about all this shit happening but no one's actually dying it's almost like saw in a way to where you know jigsaw never actually killed anybody jigsaw put a bunch of people in traps and then they ultimately killed or maimed themselves by going through it uh he didn't really kill anybody himself though and that's kind of the like the the vibe that I really got here from Strangeland. It's like, well, Captain Howdy hasn't actually murdered anybody. Like he's hurting a lot of people. He's a bad guy that should be in jail for sure, but he hasn't actually ended anybody's life from which I can see. So over the course of this film, Genevieve's father, um, 
Mike uh, Mike Gage is trying to track down Captain Howdy and arrest him and also free his daughter as well too. And the film is actually structured very interestingly enough to where uh, Mike Gage actually succeeds at that. He actually catches Captain Howdy and arrests him and gets him uh, gets him in front of a judge and. The film doesn't actually do what other franchises have done in the past to where that might be the start of the tale, that might be the end of the tale, we get a sequel, we get a prequel that really dives into that. Like, we actually kind of get to see it all play out. And it's interesting because Robert England is in this as well, who you might know as uh, Freddy Krueger. And that's a big part of that story, obviously, is that Freddy Krueger was, uh, he was released from jail due to the technicality, and then that's when a mob murdered him, and he came back from the dead and started killing all the children of Elm Street. And the idea here of Strangeland is that the police do capture, uh, they, they do capture Captain Howdy and they put him through the legal system and he claims uh, insanity, the insanity plea. He gets released and due to, you know, rehab and medication, he's normal. He's living, trying to live a normal existence. And then Nightmare on Elm Street happens to where a local mob worried about what this man will do decides to take him and put him out of his misery. Unfortunately, they don't check their work. And Captain Howdy returns to wreak more havoc upon this town. And I love that D. Snyder basically gave us like the full arc of Nightmare on Elm Street in one film because it's not a long film. It's only 87 minutes long. That's not too long of a film at all, but yet we get to see Captain Howdy's first, uh, first spree, his running with the law, and then him returning to seek revenge on everybody who basically fucked with them at the beginning of the film as well too. And I love that we get all that in here because it gives us a variety of victims. It gives some nuance to Captain Howdy himself. It actually kind of puts us on Captain Howdy's side a bit too because after he goes to rehab, he's on medication and everything, it's clear that this person could very likely live a normal life and not, you know, do any of this terrible stuff ever again. But because uh, everybody knows better and they just feel that he has to be put down, that is what leads to the trouble of our main characters. Now, outside of D. Snyder, uh, the acting is, uh, it's there. Elizabeth Pena's in it. And I mean, I like what Elizabeth Pena does because she's Elizabeth Pena and I think she's great. Robert England's great in it as well too. Uh, Amy Smart actually makes an appearance and she's fun this before she really started blowing up in that time frame as well. Uh, but the acting is, is, is nothing to, to write home about. Um, I love like Brett Harrelson as Steve, as detective Steve is so good. It's like, uh, it, it's very interesting acting that you can't look away from. That is, that is the best comment I could say about it is that it's just very interesting acting that, uh, that Brett Harrelson decides to commit to for this role. It's not going to win any acting a role, uh, acting roles folks, but D. Snyder is very intimidating as Captain Howdy. He definitely seems like a killer who is equipped, like equipped to fight the cops or get in a hand-to-hand fight with anybody that's dumb enough to come across him. Um, the only thing that was weird, like I said, is the motivations because it didn't seem like Captain Howdy was really killing anybody. Like it's kind of like he has these ideals, maybe as a part of a cult or he's leading a cult. And he's like doing all these body modifications to people and piercings and getting blood and skin and things like that in order to appeal those gods and appeals though that thought process. And that's fine. Um, I just wish like had he murdered more people, it'd be easier to get on the side of our protagonists at that point, because unfortunately, again, everything that kind of happens is kind of deserved. 
because he doesn't kill anybody yet all this shit ends up going down it's, it's a very weird feeling but it also works now is this going to be on the same quality of a lot of our other favorites absolutely not but i think that's actually what makes it better is that i don't know if d snyder purposely set out to have a movie like this made but it very much comes off like a cult classic to me to where the production the production value isn't as high as you might want it to be um the kills are overly bloody overly gory overly gruesome or at least the torturing i say killer but it's very very lifelike as well and i think that's really the focus of it is to scare you and to gross you out rather than look at this and say oh this is this is amazing film uh, and I think D. Snyder very much succeeds with A Strange Land. Now, it's available to rent on all your favorite uh, streaming platforms, Prime Video, Voodoo, uh, mo uh, Movies Anywhere, all that good stuff. So check that out on there. Not a bad coupling with Studio 666. And that's going to do it for us, folks. That is it for tonight's episode of T-Watch is a Scary Movie. We have a lot of great stuff coming up here in the coming weeks. Next week, I'm going to be taking a look at The Descent and the cave that's right we got some cave dwelling horror coming up for y'all we're gonna take a look at a couple of those then we're gonna get back to some new stuff uh we're gonna hopefully be taking a look at ty west's x and uma so that's what i'm hoping to get to y'all here over the next couple of weeks but we got a movie to go watch get on to the facebook group so you can get the link to the discord to join us to watch studio 666 and strange land those links are right over there or just go to the facebook group easier way to get in for it uh but subscribe y'all like and comment let me know what you thought about these two films if you had a chance to see them and let me know what you want me talking about here in the future rest in peace taylor hawkins my name is t we've been talking scary movies stay scared